just a girl and she's on fire hotter than a fantasy lonely like a highway she's living in a world and it's on fire filled with catastrophe but she knows she can fly away Welcome to Respeaks, hosted by yours truly, Rihanna Raymond Williams. This podcast aims to share a variety of stories and conversations discussing race, education, health, and so much more. Here I use my voice to create change in the hope that it inspires you to do the same. Join me on this journey. In this episode, I'll be speaking with one of my good friends, Jade LB who is the original writer of the noughties classic Keisha the Skep. Alongside being a writer, Jade is also a lecturer in African politics, where she leads a module and supports and challenges students to understand the complexities of the political landscape across the continent. In this conversation, I speak with Jade about her motivations for writing Keisha the Skep at the tender age of 13, her experience of working with the Murky Books team to publish Keisha the Skep nearly two decades on, and her thoughts on black British girlhood, black female sexual empowerment, sexual agency and healing. Can you introduce yourself and tell me what you do? My name's Jade. I write, I work in academia. (laughs) I don't know what else (laughs) to say right now, but yeah. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what would you bring with you and why? That is such a good question. I think I'd bring a notebook and pen. Am I only allowed to bring one item? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay, we'll give you two. The notebook and the pen, because without the pen, yeah. you can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I'd bring. Obviously, you'd be writing away, like thinking about plans for the future. How would you use these items together? Yeah, I'd just be writing, I think, writing my thoughts, maybe, which I think I've always done. I've always remembered keeping a diary. It brings a level of balance and peace and clarity. I think writing things, I like to write down ideas. Yeah, it's always been somewhat therapeutic writing. So, yeah. There's a few things we'll be talking about today, but I think we'll start off by talking about Keisha the Skep, first of all. For those who don't know, can you tell us a bit more about the novel and where it began? So Keisha the Skep is the book that I am releasing this year. It's coming out October 14th, but it didn't start this year. It didn't start recently. And it's something that's been in the works in some capacity, arguably, for almost two decades So I was 13 when I started writing this story and I, yeah, started writing this story about a girl and I got this computer for my 13th birthday and started writing this story about this girl on the notepad application on this computer and there was no internet. We didn't have any internet in the house just yet. 
So for the months before we got AOL, I was writing this story and then finally got internet and then started, you know, getting all of the must-haves of the time. So that was at a Pixo site, a Facebook account, an MSN, all of the things that my peers had. And then it was just like a last minute bright idea. Like, let me just put chapter one of this story that I've been writing on this computer up on the Pixo site. And for those that don't know, Pixo was sort of like a, it was like a hosting site for you to have your own web page, essentially, or web pages, actually collection of web pages. So yeah, I just put this chapter up. I remember putting a little note down at the bottom of the page saying I'm going to put a chapter every two weeks. And yeah, it just went from there. And people began reading it. And then people began passing it around, I guess, with their, you know, enterprising ways, (laughs) finding ways to distribute it, you know, whether it was printing it out at school or, you know, getting it onto their mobile phones and sending it through text messages, whatever. It started to go around people around my age group. Just a bit more detail in terms of what is the story about? For those who don't know the story, what would you say are some of the things that Keisha the Skate is about or some of the topics that are discussed in the novel? So I would say that the memory of Keisha the Skate is this sex story. So this story of this girl that is promiscuous and has lots of sex. But coming back to it back in 2018 was like when I finally sort of re-engaged with it. I think that I had a lot of like shame and that around having written it. It was too cringeworthy. It was too much of a cringe fest to go back to and read. So 2018 was the first time that I re-engaged. Sex was such a small part of the story. So I think as an adult, I would say that it was about relationships. It was about love. It was about girlhood. It was about, you know, existing on the cusp of womanhood. It was about Black Britishness. There was elements of music. There was elements of culture in there as well. There was a lot of sort of nods towards, I guess, what we would maybe call now street life, youth culture. Yeah, I would definitely more describe it as a depiction of life at that time more than it is about, you know, sex. Honestly, Jade, what you've created is so special and inspiring. And it really spoke to me and so many other young people, as you said, who were Bluetoothing or infrared in the story during class. And you literally went viral before rap. Viral was a concept in a digital age. So what was it like for you at the time of writing Keisha the Skirt? Particularly because as a story, I think even then as a young person, there was something about sex in it. But for young people who sex is very much a taboo, it was like, oh, my God, this story about sex and a woman, what's happening? We were so engaged in it. Did people know you were the author? And if they did, how were you treated because of that? So people did know that I was the author. Those that I grew up around, so in my area, people that I went to church with, people that I went to school with. For example, I remember one day getting on the bus and there were some girls on the top deck and they were like, are you Jade? Did you write Keisha the Skit? And I was just like, yeah. Um, (laughs) And that was it, you know. At the time of writing it, at the time of uploading the chapters, in that, you know, I guess relatively small, among that relatively small group of people, so mostly in and around North London and Hackney, it never felt like anybody was like, oh, you know, is that about you? Is that your life? And I guess it's because 
if I didn't know them directly, I didn't have a personal relationship with them, there was only maybe one degree of separation. So they were aware of me, who I was, what my real life entailed, and that it was definitely just a work of creativity and imagination. I never felt anything at the time. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel like anyone was saying anything or talking about me or had questions around my escapades. Yeah, no, I didn't feel like that. <laughs> it's so weird to think about because as you said, you wrote on Pixo, which was like a hosting website. But I remember me as a young person, I received it as a Bluetooth. It's like an attachment. I don't know if you could call it that. Like back in the day, that was an attachment. And I was all the way in East London in Stratford, but I received it from a boy who I was speaking to on episode who was from West London. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> It's just mad to think about, you know, in your small little area of North London, you just thought it existed amongst you and the circle of people you were around. But it was across London. Everybody knew about it. What would you say has been like working with Stormzy and the whole Murky Books team? And how did this come about? I sort of just ended up in the Murky offices at Penguin headquarters one day in 2019. And that was through a friend. So a friend of mine knew the head of Murky Books. First of all, they were like, oh, let's go to a Murky Books event and meet the head of Murky Books. And then, yeah, ended up in the offices. And it just sort of went from there. This was at the end of 2019. And then, of course, from the beginning of 2020, we've all been grappling with this pandemic. So everything has been done online. Everything has been done in the midst of like, a very extraordinary time in all of our lives. So there have definitely been some real challenges. And yeah, I think everybody has found it really, really challenging. But I don't think I could have asked for a better team to work with in terms of their cultural understanding, their support, how much belief they've had in the project. Particularly, I mean, I don't think that enough credence is given to the fact that it's something that I wrote when I was 13. And I think anyone would have doubts around what they wrote as a teenager, you know, but the amount of like support and just like co-sign from the entire team, the amount of people in the team that also read it as a teenager, all of that has been matchless. I wouldn't have gotten it anywhere else. I've gotten what I've needed, definitely. It's amazing to hear that, Jake, because I think you're right. I think there's so many elements of the book that I guess we as younger people related to, and even now as adults, we can reflect on and think about. But there's still a lot of people who don't get that culture and not from the culture, and they would demonise it as being like, oh, a story that should stay underground because there's not a mainstream space for it. So it's exciting, and I think it's positive and almost like a green light for so many people with other stories similar to Keisha that's get to come through and have space to exist in the mainstream, which is beautiful. If I remember correctly, a huge feature of the story was the fact that it was written in a text language. Before smartphones, we had Nokia 3310s or some other type of brick phone that wasn't a smartphone, which meant we had to kind of type consecutive digits to get a full sentence. We would write words like love as in L-O-V-E as L-U-V and also things like as today, which is T-O-D-A-Y, but number two and then day. So what would you say were some of the reasons for Keisha the Sket's success? And why do you think it continues to be remembered and celebrated today alongside the language as being a big part of it that kind of engaged us as young people? 
I think that it got its traction, one, because of the accessibility of it. It was accessible on a medium that we were all populating at the time. So many of us were on Pixo. Then those enterprising lot that were putting it into texts or were printing it on the school printer paper, (laughs) there was an accessibility that maybe just wasn't the case with books that you'd find in the library, for example. The library as a space may not have felt as accessible to a lot of young people. And maybe the perception of what types of books you would find in your local library just maybe didn't feel like it was a space for us, you know, at the time. And then, of course, there was like the cosign. So like you're hearing from your peers that you're following all the time anyway. So we're all following each other. We're all taking on what one another says. Oh, yeah, no, this is the best chicken shop. Oh, this is the best place to get your kickers you know we're always taking on what one another has to say because we all want to do the same thing at that age essentially we all want to be into the next best thing and we get that cosign from our peers essentially so when your peers are saying yeah no you got to read this is sick you're gonna read it you know so I think that there was that I think that the element of sex and one million percent was very alluring for young people who were just discovering sex or their sexuality at the time. And also, I think the notion of sex in a book. So I think we were probably all quite aware of things like pornography. But sex inside of a book, I think, was a new thing for all of us. It was definitely a new thing for me. I was introduced to books with like sex in them, I think, from like 11 or 12 was the first time that I came across stories like that. So that was what inspired me to infuse sex into this story. So I think I probably introduced quite a lot of young people to, you know, oh, books can have sex scenes in them. So that was definitely an allure as well. I think you're right. I think definitely accessibility about it and definitely the element of sex. And I think back to, I don't remember what type of books they were, but they were like erotic books that were probably been around for a long time. But to us as young people, we were becoming more interested in this because as you said, we were discovering our sexuality, discovering things around our self-esteem and body confidence, and all of this had a part to play in our interest. So yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. Unknown to you, you were definitely writing about black girlhood at the time from an inner city London perspective. And recently we've had films such as Rocks, which star Bookie Baccaray, and even Michaela Cole with Chewing Gum. I May Destroy You, which is other elements of Black British girlhood. And in America, we had TV shows like Sister Sister and One on One and Moesha, and they presented Black American girlhood. What inspired you when you were writing at the time? And what were you trying to communicate, I guess, about Black British girlhood? I don't know that I had that sort of clarity or understanding of myself and what I was actually trying to do. I do remember very clearly the feeling of writing up a boy that I would love to have been my boyfriend. And I think I wrote that into Ricardo and how benevolent he was, essentially, how much he loved off Keisha, you know, that feels quite lucid. That feels quite like clear to me. But I don't know that I had that type of direction. And I do think that I was definitely influenced by the shows that you mentioned the Moesha the sister sister the one-on-one I loved sister sister in particular and I definitely think that these portrayals of black girlhood 
were really, really influential and really have like ingrained themselves in my mind from that early age. And when I probably looked back at the things that I was consuming that were British, I don't think I could relate. And the things that I was still consuming, so like, I don't think I really watched anything that was British, but I do remember reading a lot of Jacqueline Wilson when I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And I loved Jacqueline Wilson and I loved the stories that she told. And I saw elements of myself and my actual reality and experiences in the stories that she told in the Tracy B car or some of the other characters, Ellie, Star, all of these girls that had body image issues or had like socioeconomic issues. And I could really relate to them, but there was still a gap between me and them because they were white. And then I began reading American urban novels. And again, I found something that felt a bit more familiar than the Ellie, the star, the Tracy in Jacqueline Wilson's texts. So I think that it was maybe like a really cumulative sort of inspiration from all of the things that I was consuming and all of the things that I had consumed over like the course of my own girlhood. And as I was entering into adolescence, I just was creating from, yeah, all of this stuff that I had consumed over the years. I think you're right and I think you talked about it early in terms of the content of Keisha the Skate being quite sexually explicit obviously that's what I remember that's what a lot of young people remember but I guess you looking back on it now as an adult the sex part was a small part of it but it was something that really spoke to us as young people and just thinking about that do you think that young black women and their sexual behavior and um, they're still kind of treated the same way today do you think much has changed in terms of how black women are framed when they talk about performing their sexual agency? I think that the conversation around black women and sex is a really wide and broad one. And I don't think I would ever want to be framed as being an authority in or on that conversation. What I will say is that in the essay that I have written in the Keisha the Skep book, I do talk about sexuality. And when I say sexuality, I mean sexuality and sexual expression and I just talk about almost this idea of Keisha's promiscuity and it is an idea and it's misogyny that allows us to think of Keisha as promiscuous and to burden her with these ideas about sex so heavily because reading back I really see Keisha as a victim So I don't see her as having much sexual agency at all, actually, as a character. I actually see her as a victim of a lot of non-consensual sex and a lot of coercion. And I think that all at the same time, when she is engaging in sex with a couple of characters, we do get moments and times where Keisha does sort of convey an ability to be connected with herself and her body, an ability to enjoy sex. And I think that A lot of the sex I was having in my early 20s, I remember it being a lot of enduring or performing and acquiescing and sort of negotiating how I felt after the deed was done. And I presume that that is a story for a lot of women, that sex isn't maybe necessarily something that we feel able to enjoy or something that we feel like we're allowed to express enjoying. I remember having a conversation with a colleague He's a bit older than me and he was saying he remembers as a teenager when you'd have sex with a girl, if she moaned too much, she was considered loose. 
and of course moaning is sort of indicative of you know enjoyment and one's capacity to enjoy an act but that didn't surprise me because I think that we've all got a lot of deconstructing to do when it comes to our misogyny men and women alike I think I say all of that to say that there's a duality to Keisha I think she's very much a victim to some really ugly things and at the same time we see glimmers of well a young lady that has some connection to her body and some capacity to express herself sexually as well. I'm thinking about this story as a 13 year old 14 year old person reading it and what I remember is the sex parts of it even then I don't even think I would have seen her as a victim and I think just because it had elements of sex, that's what kind of engaged us in the story. But whether or not it was consensual or not, I don't even think we had the language for that. And I don't think there's enough being taught to young people about consent and how to have sexual empowerment and what that means in terms of choice and freedom and their rights. So I think all of what you said is so true. And I think I'm looking forward to reading, I guess, the updated version of what that looks like. And if I do see different elements in it now, definitely, I think I hope to (laughs) as an adult. A reading from the original version of Keisha the Skit. I quickly looked in the mirror just to check myself. How the hell can I go see that painting looking like this? So I opened my wardrobe. It was a sunny day, so I took out some short white rara skirt and a pink vest top. I got out my brand new Converse's. They were white and folded down. On the inside, they had pink swirls. I completed my outfit with a pink Nike wristband and my white rosary beads. I looked in the mirror and thought to myself, oh, Ross. Then I ran downstairs and told my mum I would be going to Shanice's yard and we'll be back at around 11. Yeah, all right. See you tomorrow. Bye. And I ran out the door and walked down the road to Shanice's yard. There was a group of boys sitting on the wall jamming. When I went by, they all started saying, ah, Chung Ting, all that shit. One of them jumped off the wall and came up to me. He was bare buff and he must have goes, ah, so can I get your number? And took out his phone. I gave it to him and then he goes, ah, I'll phone you tomorrow or later, innit? I just walked and smiled to myself. I got to Shanice's yard and knocked the door. Her buff big brother answered the door. Rah, you sure you're looking for Shanice and not me? He said, looking me up and down. Thinking about, because I guess I know you, and I think thinking about working where we've worked before, when we worked in supported accommodation, specifically for young people or young women at risk of child sexual exploitation, So thinking about that role that we both did, can you tell us a little bit more about what that consisted of? We worked in supported accommodation. So after the Rotherham Inquiry, which was an inquiry into sexual exploitation and grooming gangs in the north of England, after that inquiry into that situation, there was some moves from the government to do things to fund charities and projects to help support young women and protect young women. And so we got jobs with a charity that had received government funding to set up homes specifically for girls at risk of sexual exploitation. So very much like children's homes, but they had a very specific reason for existing. And that was, yeah, because there are 
girls at risk and they are, you know, being made aware of by the authorities. So they might be on child protection registers or whatever the case may be. A lot of the time they were running away frequently and there were also a lot of the time concerns around their safety when it came to sex. Some of their stories were they had been interfered with by family members. Some of them, their story was they had older boyfriends. Some of them, their story was there were reports and concerns that they were being exploited by young men that would be considered gang members in the local area. So there were a variety of different background stories, but it was mostly around sex and relationships. The concerns existed with these young women. Child exploitation is a form of child abuse. It can happen face to face or online. It's when one person or a group of people take advantage of you and trick you, manipulate you or force you into doing something you don't want to do to commit a crime. Like taking drugs somewhere, looking after something that isn't yours, like money, guns or drugs, or being forced into having sex or other stuff that you don't want to do. This is exploitation. Even when it looks like we are consenting to this, we don't have a choice. How did you get into this work and what do you think are some of the factors that you think make young women in particular more vulnerable to grooming and exploitation? I don't know about you, Rihanna, but I really feel like I fell into it. Yeah, I just kind of fell into it. How do you feel? I definitely fell into it for sure, but I think it was almost a progression in terms of the work as working as a sexual health advisor, working in the area of sexual health, but also previously working in supported accommodation. So this was kind of like my work as a sexual health advisor fused with working in supported accommodation coming together. So I'm now working in a home or homes of young people at risk of child sexual exploitation. I feel like it was a natural progression of some sort, but at the same time, I know I very much fell into it as a part-time job because I needed money whilst I was studying. So, and it just happened to be that all the skills that I had were perfect for the role. Yeah, I feel like I fell into it. And I think my context or my background is and was a bit different from yours. So I think for me, it felt a little, a little bit more random. I did work in schools for some time prior to that. But in terms of like anything that was specifically directed towards sex, that was my first time working in that sort of capacity. Theoretically, it was a really good idea. I think in theory and on paper, it was a really good idea. And I get it. I get it. But in practice, I think it was really unsafe. (laughs) and I laugh not because it's funny because it's so dangerous but I laugh because it just makes you think that there's plans that happen before these places launch and it just makes you think who was sitting around the table to agree this should happen and I guess just like you're right I think on paper it makes sense and it's well-intentioned but the reality of managing risk and ensuring that they're not going to continue to create more harm for these young people I'm not sure that was really considered And I think on the most basic level, the idea of the home is to give these young women a place where they feel safe. And for a lot of young people, that is the ideal. But when you've got young people who are so traumatised by all the things that they've been exposed to, a home is great, but they need therapeutic support, which should be the main thing. And at times, I don't think 
that's what I saw happening or really felt that that was a central factor to their development whilst being in this home? The thing is, I feel like I have this conversation quite often with some of my friends that are in therapy and it's the conversation around doing all of that therapeutic work and then almost leaving the therapy session and coming back out into the bullshit. And so if we think or imagine that these girls, instead of having the home, instead what they had was the therapy, imagine you're going to the therapy and then you're coming back to the estate where the boys that had you up in the blocks, you're still having to walk past them. You're still having to walk past the same blocks. So it's almost like a toss up, which one was more important. I think again, in theory, the safe space, the safe homely space in theory is better. But even that concept and that notion is a falsehood because that's not their home the funding might run out in two years and then what happens? And even if the funding never ever runs out, they will get to 18 and then they're going to be moved on somewhere again, you know? And so I think that that lack of safety, I think is a consistent running theme in these young women's lives. And I don't think that they could ever find a place of like feeling really settled and really safe when they're in the system because the system is always spitting them out and moving them along. And I agree, Jade. I think there's so many different factors as to why it is unsafe. Yes, I think it's a great intention. I think even my work previously working in supported accommodation, this is with young people with all different sorts of issues. It could be down to substance misuse or family breakdown, whatever the situation was. But I think just the concept of putting so many people with so many traumatic problems together in one place can't be the best idea. It's almost like the trauma bonding, which can be helpful, but at the same time, it can feel like these people are learning danger from each other and they're being groomed and coerced into things they probably wouldn't have been exposed to before, but now they're with people who have other traumatic issues that have happened to them. And I think even just thinking about therapy, therapy and like the safe home, a safe home is quick and easy to measure. Like you give somebody a bedroom with, you know, clothing and food and these are tangible things, but you can't really measure somebody's development as a person in therapy. Like that's not something that we can almost measure. It takes a longer time to measure transformation in that sense or healing or recovery. And I don't think that really underpins therapeutic practice. Governments want quick wins. They want to say this person is housed, they're housed, they're clothed, they're fed, and that is tick, tick, tick. But have you dealt with their trauma? Oh, we're working on it. (laughs) Yeah, you can't really measure that. Not even we're working on it. I don't even feel like those are the types of conversations. You're right, it's very tick boxy. It needs to be measurable. Everything needs to be measurable. And I think it's just the way of the world. I think it's just the way that governments need to run or feel like they need to work. They need something measurable. They need something soundbitey to be able to say in the next up-and-coming election or when they're going for the next bit of funding or whatever it is. And it's just a shame that that's the way that things run. That's not how humans develop. That's not how humans heal. That's not how humans coexist. Even in thinking about the solution, so I think that before what I said in the conversation was that the solution to this stuff would be one thing. So it would be, you know, young women having safe spaces and having more funding and blah, blah, blah. But actually, 
the actual real solution to this stuff would be getting to the root of the issue, which is misogyny and patriarchy. And that is something that is like educative that needs to happen at the very beginning of people's lives, you know? But yeah, I don't know. I say I don't know. I think I do know, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. it's really hard. It's really tough. And I definitely learned a lot in that year that I worked with those young women. Similar to you, I didn't work there for too long, as you know, because I just felt like this is all too much. (laughs) I just felt that um, this is not to knock the staff who work there or the people who had the best intentions, but these provisions need to be staffed by people who are able to deliver a certain level of support. And I didn't always see that. And I think that is a very big problem because we know that the care and support system is very low paid and also the people who are working in it aren't valued enough and that impacts the care and support that they're able to give to the people who need it which ultimately affects their safety of the what can I say service users or patients accessing the service but the care system is broken as we know and people become institutionalized and yeah it's a huge problem. Here is a short clip from a TEDx talk by Carly Ann Firming at TEDx Tottenham in London. Here she speaks about contextual safeguarding, which is a safeguarding approach that encourages us to understand and respond to young people's experiences of significant harm beyond their families. Through understanding the multiple spaces and places where young people may be exposed to harm, such as schools, colleges, shopping centres or parks, we can begin to better understand place-based risk to keep young people and children safe. Good afternoon, everyone. It's an honour to be here with you today in Tottenham. And before I start, I'm going to own that I am not from Tottenham. I am from Edmonton. So if there's any border issues, all right. I apologise, but I do spend a lot of my time working in Tottenham, across London and across the UK. So I hope what I have to share with you this afternoon will be of interest. What I want to focus on is how we rewrite the rules of child protection. And while that might seem a bit grandiose and confused, I want to take you right into the place where I'm trying to make that change before I help you think about the role you can play in creating safe places for our young people. And to take you into that world, I want to focus on the nine cases that changed my view of how young people experience risk. And by the time I got to those nine cases, I'd already spent years interviewing young people around the country, in our prisons, in our children's homes, in our schools, getting a sense of what they were experiencing on the streets and in their communities and how things could be made better for them. But it was being sat with nine cases that I was able to really critically think about the change that was needed. And there's lots of ways I could describe those nine cases. I could describe them by talking about the offences they featured. Three were murder cases, six were rape cases, all involving young people under the age of 16 harming other young people under the age of 16, and 145 of them were spread across those nine cases when you included the peer groups involved. But I'm not going to describe those offences, and I'm not even really going to describe much about the individual young people involved. What I am going to talk to you about are the stairwells, the bus terminuses, the online spaces, the housing estates and parks, and even the school toilets where these incidents occurred. Because it was in sitting and looking at those places 
if I actually got a much better understanding of what was going on for our young people and why we needed to make a difference. And when I went back and looked at the research internationally into how young people experience violence, the same messages about place were writ large. They were just completely missing from the way we designed the systems intended to keep young people safe. When we looked at young people's households, we saw time and time again a disproportionate number of them living with domestic violence in their early years and through their adolescence, and the impact of those experiences not being addressed. We also saw young people co-offending and being victimised alongside older siblings. But the biggest message in the cases, and all too often seen in the research, was parents saying, I have lost control of my child. The child I used to take to primary school and drop off and take to play dates now has started to go to secondary school. They won't answer their phone. They won't come back on time. I don't know who they're talking to online and I don't know how to get them back. And often we try to understand that parent by thinking about what was wrong with them. There must be a deficit. There must be something about them that means that they can't control their child. And so what we're going to do with that parent is send them on a parenting class teach them how to be a parent, and then all will be better. Unfortunately, this was not what was happening for most of those parents. In fact, most of the young people, despite a disproportionate number, living in homes that experience harm, most of those young people were living in safe and protective families when they were impacted by murder or serious incidents of sexual violence. And to understand the struggles of those parents, we needed to look beyond their front doors. And no other context was more significant than young people's peer relationships. And in the research, we see it all the time. We see studies that suggest that young men who are part of violent or aggressive peer groups are more likely to harm their partners than young men living in violent households. We know that the younger you are, the more likely you are to commit very serious offences in groups that you would never commit on your own. We even see that in the sentencings of judges who say, if you hadn't all been together, this young person that you killed would still be alive. But once you got together, very bad decisions were made. And the only way we can understand those groups is to think about the places and spaces in which they're spending their time. And all too often, in the cases I looked at, young people were forming, storming, and norming friendship groups in schools where they were exposed to bullying, problematic corridor culture, including the lifting of skirts and the pinging of bra straps during the transition to lesson, educational establishments being targeted by organized crime groups to recruit young people to traffic drugs across the country, and even soft messages in curriculum which focused on young people not sharing sexual images of themselves that young people then translated as being, well, if you share an image of yourself and someone else onward shares it to a thousand people, it's your fault. And when we asked young people, who's to blame if an image is shared of them around an entire school? They said, the person in the image. And when we asked them why, they said, because we've all been in the same classroom and we've all been told don't share an image. So if you do share an image and someone else onward shares it, you're responsible for the harm that you've been, that you faced. So there's a range of ways in which our school communities can create harmful environments for our young people and likewise can create protective environments where young people can form healthy and secure attachments with peers. Likewise in neighbourhood settings where young people are exposed to street-based victimisation, robbery, theft of bicycles, mobile phones, clothing, who can they turn to in their community to keep them safe? Who will stop the mobile phone being stolen again? Who steps in to offer that protection? And in one case I reviewed of a rape on a stairwell, 
All the young people involved in that rape received prison sentences. The victim in that case was moved to another part of the country, as were multiple relatives. Two young women who gave evidence in that case for the prosecution were moved. A young man who also gave evidence was moved. The stairwell remained a hotspot for rape for another six years, with other young people using the exact same stairwell, and never was there an intervention with the stairwell, only with the children who used it. Going back to Keisha the skit, what would you say were some of the issues that she had, if we could think about her as a real person? And what would you say were types of support she would have benefited from? I know you spoke about her engaging in non-consexual sex and kind of being exposed to other harms. What would you say about the support that she should have had access to, to maybe help her and support her? That's such an interesting question because the book is in three parts, essentially. There is the original story that I wrote as a 13 to 15-year-old. Then there are a compilation of essays. And then I have done a rewrite of the story, of Keisha's story. And the reason why we decided to do that as part of the project was because, one, there was so much of the story that kind of didn't make sense. There was just silly little things that just that like, kind of didn't make sense. I just felt like, okay, that is extreme. Like that just wouldn't happen <laughs> in real life. <laughs> Very like fantasy. So a good example, this isn't fantasy, but it is something that from a literary perspective wouldn't make sense. So I mentioned Keisha's dad like once in the story, in the original, and there's nothing else, no other mention of Keisha's dad. So it's sort of like, okay, like, where's the dad? You know, what is that relationship like, you know? So there were so many of those conversations being had around the original, hence why we thought what would be good is to leave the original as it is for the nostalgia, for those to remember, for people not familiar with the work, to see like this is what people are talking about. This is exactly what people are talking about when they talk about Keisha Biscuit from the mid-noughties. And then the rewrite, is almost my interpretation of Keisha as an adult. And also, you know, my capacity to tell story and to add in literary techniques. I've been able to do that in this rewrite. I say all of that to say that I guess in the rewrite, I make new stories around Keisha. So I think about these vulnerabilities and I've thought about what is Keisha's background story that informs her present reality and her present behaviors so why is Keisha in such an intense relationship as a 16 17 18 year old young girl why is she in such an intense relationship with this young boy why does she stay at his house all the time as a young teenager why is her mum letting her do that what about her or her feelings about her home life why is there that disconnect why is she almost seeking solace in this young boy's home What is that, you know? So I almost had to create new narratives and stories and flesh out old narratives and stories around Keisha and try and gauge an understanding of what I was getting at by, for example, writing about this young character in this intense relationship with this boy. I think that some of Keisha's vulnerabilities were clearly a difficult mother-daughter dynamic. I think I've grown to learn that our foundational relationships with our parents are formative, you know, they are the most forming relationships and they inform every other relationship we go on to have in the rest of our lives. And I think that 
Keisha's relationship with her mum is very forming and in the original text I write almost like this passive relationship between Keisha and her mum so it's like the mum's just like oh yeah okay do what you want sort of thing in the rewrite I get way more specific so in the rewrite Keisha's mum has an alcohol problem and I guess mum's addiction feeds into a lot of why Keisha behaves the way that she behaves or why there's a disconnect between Keisha and home and safety and mum and that relationship. I would say that central to Keisha's vulnerabilities, I think, is a fractured relationship with her mum, an absent father. I think that Keisha is also having a difficult time understanding her worth. I think also I would say that Keisha is having a really difficult time reconciling having boundaries and still having relationships with men. So I think that she is in relationships with boys or men and not having boundaries. Some of the things that you mentioned, I guess, thinking about Keisha the Skep, the old Keisha and the new Keisha, or the kind of remake of Keisha, thinking about things such as sexuality, about body confidence, around boundaries, around well-being. How do you think we can better support young people to be sexually responsible and comfortable with their health and well-being choices? We are obviously at ages now where we're thinking about or already having families, already having children nurturing growing children and if we're not we have friends that definitely are and I just think it goes back to these foundational relationships that we have with the children that are going to be adults in 20 plus years and I think we have a real responsibility to do our work to do our emotional work to understand how important it is to rear our children to have respect for self and then they will have respect for others to love themselves and have the capacity to love others to have an understanding of you know what feels safe and healthy I think that it's really our duty to do our work to rear and raise adults that can establish boundaries communicate them have an understanding of what they need it's really our responsibility I mean I'll be really honest I am nearly 30 years old and I think I still find myself grappling with sometimes establishing and enforcing communicating and enforcing boundaries as a big 29 year old woman you know and I'm really committed to doing the work for that to be easier for me but yeah I think it's a journey I think it's a work in progress I think that the more of us that are talking about our therapeutic journeys, the more of us that are talking about our journeys with self-love, our journeys in relationships, so in healthy relationships, or even in the toxic relationships that we, you know, cut short. I think the more that we talk about that, the more that we sort of empower one another to continue to self-actualize, to continue to find ourselves to yeah give the next generation the confidence you know I think maybe more practically I think that schools government local authorities have a responsibility to fund initiatives and facilitation around healthy relationships and sex to fund 
public sexual health services. So yeah, I think that those are a couple of ways. Just like you, I'm nearly 30 myself, but I think the journey continues no matter what age I am around kind of unlearning bad behaviour and relearning or developing better behaviour to help myself and others around me. But I think it's a beautiful thing because I know there's people who don't even know what that means. They don't even realise their behaviour is bad, their attitude is bad, and they're just not aware. And I think it takes somebody to be really brave to start that journey and really reflect, as you said, on, I guess, the good experiences and the toxic ones to really understand why they shouldn't be repeated so yeah I don't think it's an age thing and I think sometimes people get down about the age thinking okay at this age I should know better I should be doing better but we're all on the journey of life some people are more awake than others on that journey but <laughs> it's a journey and we just go through it as we do just thinking about that what are the things that keep you well and how do you manage your health and well-being on this journey even as you mentioned earlier, going back to something that you wrote when you was 13 can be a very challenging process because, you know, there's things that even I did when I was 18 that I want to forget about. So things that you did at 13, it's a whole long way back. It definitely is. Yeah, I really feel like my journey with this in the years 2018 to now has been a really significant part of my journey, not only with liking myself accepting parts of myself that you said like you just you want to forget all of that cringy stuff you want to forget you know the mistakes that you've made you just want to forget it and this has been like really humbling really affirming as well but it's also really forced me to look back at my teenage self and love I have to love her like you have helped me carve out a new part of my career a whole new part of my career and that 13-year-old little enterprising girl who had this computer after everyone else had a computer and then got internet after everyone else in the whole <laughs> wide world, so it felt like, <laughs> got internet. You've created something that so many people revere and loved and that formed like a key part of the adolescence. And you've never felt like that. You never felt like, or wanted or very worthy at that age that 13 year old should have never felt like that because all along this was the affirmation that she was going to get all these years later so I think that in working on this project it has been really really therapeutic and really important to my journey therapy which I started in 2018 has been very central to me, my well-being, understanding myself, developing confidence, liking myself, learning to love myself. Yeah, it's been really, really central. And I think that also staying active. So like whether it's working out or doing yoga, it's very, very important to me to continue in those practices to move my body as much as possible in a week. I would say those things. I totally agree. I think we all are on a journey to developing better self-care practices, whether they're around movement or mental well-being. All of it is about keeping us well and maintaining our life for as long as possible. I know a bit about your work as being an African politics lecturer. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about what that consists of and how you got into that role? 
Yeah, again, feels like I just fell into it, (laughs) much like so many things in my life. I teach African politics at London University and lead the module there. And I started out actually just in an academic mentoring role for the politics department, but I was the only member of staff with any specialism in African politics. So yeah, they were really quick to get me into teaching and offer me to do my postgraduate certificate as well, which I haven't started, but it will make me a qualified lecturer. It's a part of my career that I very much enjoy and something that I would like to focus on and work towards. However, I do feel that academia is exceptionally stressful. I work part-time and I look at the burden and the responsibility and the workload that so many of my colleagues have. And I just don't feel like that's a quality of life. I don't feel like that's any quality of life. So in some respects, I'm quite sceptical and not to dive fully in. So I don't think I would ever want to do it full time um, for that to be like my title, my thing, because it just seems way too stressful and way too underpaid for the amount of time. But it is something that I'm very interested in. I think that it's really important within the academy to have people that look like me, that are, you know, young, that speak in more accessible ways, that write in more accessible ways, that have had the type of experiences that I've had in academia. And when I say I, I'm also thinking about people like yourself. We don't come from families where it was the done thing to go to university or where, yeah, there's no real history of engaging in academia per se, but is something that we were encouraged to do by our teachers in formative years. And here we are, do you know what I mean? However many degrees later. And I just think it's important our stories and the ways that we show up in the world for other people to know that they can also be in academia, take up space, have meaningful things to write about and say and help other people along the way as well. Because... I think if I had a lecturer like me, it would have been more comfortable navigating academia. I think that it's been a very uncomfortable journey, if I'm to be honest. Navigating academia, I think I've worked against myself a bit. So I've felt the shame. I've felt the like, I don't understand what's going on. (laughs) They're not going to understand me if I put my hand up. I don't understand this text. I don't know what the man's talking about. Everyone in this class has read this Hobbs and Locke I don't know them I don't know what this is I don't know what they're talking about and for some reason it's grace that I was getting firsts and things like that (laughs) when I was doing the essays even though I didn't know what the hell these people were talking about it's you knowing your stuff but I think it's such an interesting point that you make there like there's things that we think that we don't know but when we come and put pen to paper we know and we fly with colors so It's not Grace Jade, you know what you're talking about. You're intelligent, you're creative, all of this is who you are. So it's grace, of course, God's grace always continues to move us forward, but you have all the skills and tools that you need to be successful. And I think it's just about, as we say, like owning that and walking in that in anything that we do. So whether it's in academia that you choose to create a career for yourself, whether it's in the creative industry, literary worlds, you have all the tools that you need to be successful. Amen. Yeah, we're young. We're young and like we've got so much ahead of us. 
And there's so much that has happened in the last, what, 10 years of our working lives. I look forward to it anyway. Going back to the course, can you tell us a little bit more about what you teach on the course and how it was developed or some of the things that are important for students to learn about on the course? I start my course letting my students know we're not drawing any conclusions on this course. So there is no one size fits all for this continent. We're not going to develop a theory or a working sort of plan for how we're going to save Africa or solve every problem that the continent faces. And I also, I don't have the answers either. This is an exploration into some of the issues that the continent faces politically and how far back the reasons for contemporary issues, how far back that goes. But that's all we're doing is just an exploration. We don't have the answers. And I think it's important to say that because I think that there is definitely a very like Eurocentric whitewashed sort of conception that this is what they need to do and that sort of end of conversation when actually there is so much to look at and to consider and to contemplate and there's so much elements of truth when it comes to what Africa faces contemporarily. The module is split between 12 weeks and I just look at a variety of different topics. I look at conflict, I look at civil society I look back at colonialism. I look at this concept and notion of democracy and students sort of see that everything is interlinked throughout the whole course. There's a connection to everything. We look at the Cold War and we just see how what was happening during the period of the Cold War sort of feeds into so much of, you know, many countries' trajectories up until today but also at the same time so did colonialism and also at the same time so does conflict and yeah so it's like everything is so interweaved and interlinked yeah that's I guess a snapshot of how the course has been constructed. Even just thinking about like maybe some of the students who choose this module is it in line with any like particular areas of what they might be studying for their undergraduate course or is it a variation of students who may just have an interest in African politics? For the most part, it is students that are doing a politics course. But yeah, I mean, I had a student who was studying electronics and this was the one module that he did outside of his like school. But he was, I believe, Angolan and just had a personal interest, of course, in the continent. How would you say you've merged your creative practice as a writer with academia? It's so funny because I don't know that I would say that I have, you know. I think that that's a me thing, though. I think that because Keisha the Sket is what it is, and that is the thing that is forging my writing career, it feels so far away from quote-unquote academia. And there needs to be a decolonization of academia and, like, this gatekeeping of what is considered academic and, like, right for the academy. And I definitely carry the burden of that like my manager doesn't even know anything about this book (laughs) maybe one of my colleagues who is a young black woman (laughs) like me so I felt an openness to be able to talk to her and what have you and to be honest she actually approached me because she clocked she put two and two together but yeah there's definitely a separation between the two and I think it's going to take a layer of confidence from me 
to begin to merge the two, I guess. In time, I guess it will come. You're right, it will come, Jane. You can't run from it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's something in you trying to run and say, this is over yeah. there and this is there. It's going to come. It's going to come. <laughs> you just have to step into it. Yeah, I hear you, though. And I think it's a lot about what we see as academic. And I think, just as you said, it's very problematic. It's very Eurocentric. And it just doesn't reflect a lot of the people. I think the time will come where it is where it is and you'll step into what you're destined for. Is there anything that you would change about your journey to date? Um, If so, what is it? And if not, why? I can be a bit negative. I'll be so honest. I think, yeah, that's one thing about me. I think I can be a bit negative. So there were definitely points of time where I was like, oh, why why me with this Keisha the Skep stuff? (laughs) Like, this is so hard. (laughs) And this is so, like, emotionally taxing and, like, oh my gosh, this feels so cringy and oh my gosh, like my mum's going to read this and I'm going to have to have a conversation with my mum about this. So this was before she knew about it. And then now it's like, oh, the book is coming. So she's going to read what her daughter was writing at 13. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes when I'm in a real negative sort of spiral, yeah, I can think those negative things. I can literally go as deep as like, why me, you know? But ultimately, I think my highest self doesn't regret or wouldn't change anything. Yeah, wouldn't change anything. I think that the only thing that I would change or maybe maybe wish for or hope for more for myself is maybe less imposter syndrome. So I think that the way that I've described the way that I've moved into different elements of my career is just like, oh, I just, you know, ended up there. And I sort of maybe don't give enough credit to the skills and like the reasons why I've been in the places that I've been or why I'm in the places that I'm in. So yeah, maybe more confidence in my abilities, maybe more intentionality from me as well in where I am stepping and like the purpose and the confidence that I am stepping with. But yeah, maybe that's the only thing I would change. What are you currently working on? We have essentially wrapped the Keisha the Sket stuff, but I mean... You know, there are little bits and bobs. So there's a lot of publicity stuff at the moment. There's the audio, you know, version of the book. So these next few months are really, really jam-packed with Keisha the Skep book stuff. There is definitely, in terms of, like, literature, you know, sort of, okay, so what's coming next? (laughs) Those sorts of conversations. So there are hopes that I will write something next. And there's a lot of interest in what, the next project is going to be and I guess I've got a lot of thinking to do you know about how I can create a life for myself that will facilitate writing another book and of course this is going to be a whole new experience because it's going to be from scratch Keisha get arguably wasn't from scratch another book would be from scratch so I've got that to think about but I think that my plans for the rest of 2021 are just to you know ride out all of this Keisha the Skep stuff and have a nice Christmas, a restful Christmas and yeah, start putting my head down for 2022 and making some decisions. Well, thank you so much, Jane. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you and I'm really excited for the book to come out. Thank you. No, thank you so much. I look forward to listening back to the podcast and continue doing what you're doing. 
production and sound design of this episode was by Hannah Ward. Thank you for listening to Respeaks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, join me again soon.